The events of 2020 made all of us think differently in so many ways, including the way we view leadership. Most leaders recognized more clearly than before the importance of leading in a more human way, a way that sees diversity and the well-being of the individual employee not as side programs, but as a critical part to their organization's success. It is in this context that we created the Human-Centered Leadership Podcast, where we ask the question, how do you leave your employees better than you found them? In this, our inaugural episode, we are honored to have as our first guest, John Russett, former Vice President of Manufacturing at General Mills, the food company known for its iconic brands, including Cheerios and Gold Medal Flour. We learned from John tips on how he was able to drive exceptional results through a high-touch, human-centered form of leadership. His tips will include how to remember people's names, how to hold employees accountable for high performance in a human way, and how to find time to be personal even amidst running a large organization. My name is Pete Longhurst, and I will co-host this session with my colleague, Marcy McKay. Marcy, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks so much, Pete. Hi, everyone. My name is Marcy McKay, and I'm really excited to be a part of the Human-Centered Leadership Podcast. I think that this is such a timely topic that is important not only for our mental uh, health and well-being, but also for our companies. So I'm really excited to be a part of this as we dive into topics that will hopefully be meaningful to you. And I'm excited to learn some things along the way. Thank you, Marcy. And now let's let's hear from our featured guest, John Russett. John, would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely, Pete. Happy to introduce myself. Before I do that, I want to thank you and Marcy for asking me to join you today. I'm looking forward to our chat. Um, by way of introduction, I... Um, I had 34 plus years at uh, General Mills. As, as we get chatting this afternoon, it occurs to me that I'll probably share some stories and some personal experiences. Those are the result of the great people that I had an opportunity to rub elbows with and work with over the years at General Mills. Great leaders, great peers, just great colleagues and team members from all the different plants I worked in and into the corporate headquarters. So I'm a big believer that we're products of our environment. Uh, if I have anything smart to say, it's because it's a product of the environment that I worked in and the great people that I worked with. With that, I'll turn it back to you, Pete, and you, Marcy. I, I look forward to the chat, ready to get started. Thanks for that intro, John. To give a little context on how we know each other, um, we met while I was running the General Mills Leadership Institute years ago, where we would feature executives as adjunct faculty to instruct our new managers. And of all the amazing executives we had to draw from, we always tried to get John first. John had a way of engaging our new managers and connecting with them and leaving them motivated to be leaders. One thing that always impressed me was just a little thing, but John would make it a point to learn and remember people's names. I interacted very little with John and and was much lower in the organizational hierarchy, and John somehow remembered my name and would address me when we passed in the halls. I was always so impressed with that, and I wasn't the only one whose name he remembered. John, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's that's nice of you to mention that, and I, I'm I'm probably lucky that I, I have a decent memory, <laughs> so that so that so that helps. But you know, I, I gotta. I, I'm. This will sound funny. I'm gonna give my mom a little credit for that. My mom was when I was young, and wherever I went with my mom, she always 
knew everyone's name. And I just, there was a certain energy that I remember uh, when my mom would be greeting people and how they'd brighten up and it'd bring a smile to their face and how they'd engage with a different type of energy than maybe, for instance, when I was with other people and they'd just say, hey, how you doing? <laughs> you know, and uh, so the, the other thing that, that struck me when I moved up to the corporate, I always knew everybody's names in the plant. I spent a lot of time on the on the floor and uh, getting to know people in a lot of different ways, you know, getting to know, you know, I didn't go out on the floor and check the case counter right away. I, I, I took to me being in the plants every day was more of a social occasion to get to know people and understand their motivations and, and help them in the way I could uh, so they could be successful at whatever it was they were doing. But, but in any event, the name thing. So when I came to the corporate, um, oh, my goodness, Pete, how many people in that environment? 3,000, 4,000, whatever. Yeah, and, and I'd meet a lot of people in meetings, and I'd be presenting or doing different things. And, and it always made me feel good as a kid and as a young adult and as a professional when people would say, hi, John. There's just something special when they acknowledge that they know who you are. And so I got to the corporate in the first few days, I kind of noticed, oh, this is hard. I don't know everybody anymore like I did out in the plants. And um, and they're all saying, hi, John. And I'm saying, oh, how you doing? You know, or, hey. And, and I didn't like that. I didn't feel good about not acknowledging them with their name. So I actually did put a little effort into this. Uh, I would if I was walking with someone and someone said, hi, John, I'd immediately ask whoever I was with once we passed, hey, do you happen to know who that, who that was? And if they didn't, I, do you happen to know what group they work in or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'd quickly do a little research on who that person was and find out their name. Or I'd even go to different floors on occasion. So I think they work up on fourth floor with whatever. And I'd find myself wandering up to the fourth floor and, and, uh, wandering around until I found names. And, and then as I was doing that, of course, I, oh, well, I saw her the other day and, you know, oh, that's Sue. Okay. And so um, while I was lucky that it came pretty naturally, I, I did put some effort into it. And I think it mostly came from the fact that I felt good when people said, hi, John. And I didn't like saying, hey, how you doing? And, um, and you're right, Pete. It's funny because I do have people to this day that say, you know, how did you know everybody's name? And I, I it just it's it's half good memory. And, and, and but then it, there's there's some intentionality that goes along with that as well, I think. You know, it reminds me of the uh, one of Stephen Covey's quotes about with people, the little things are the big things. And uh, and that's just one of those one of those things, isn't it? It's like that little thing, but it means it means a lot. One of the other things you were just talking about when you were uh, walking around the plant was trying to identify what motivated people. And you use that word motivate. Uh, and what kind of an impact did that have when you could really identify a motivator for somebody? What impact did that have on them and their performance? Yeah. And we've all heard the saying, people don't know, how, they don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. And uh, I, I just saw that play out over and over again uh, out in the plants. What strikes me is I would never lead with 
what we need done or, you know, you could do this better or so on and so forth. I'd always lead with a series of questions. And I, and I moved from plant to plant. And I think I developed this by moving from plant to plant. But I'd spend the first 90 days trying not to make any oh, too, too critical of decisions or change the direction of anything too much. Rather, I'd spend the first 90 days trying to get to know people, understand how long they'd been there, understand how they thought about the plant and the company and their job and what was important to them. And so I'd really do a research project over the course of, uh, of my first uh, couple, three months in any plant. And it was, and that informed me then of what the culture was like and who the informal leaders were, who the technical experts were, and a, and a little bit about each of these individuals to know when I went back out on the floor, how to relate to them. And then as I related to them as individuals and that as someone in the packing department, and, um, you know, I think it demonstrated a little bit of care that, yeah, John, John asked me, you know, how my son was doing because he knows he plays on the football team down at wherever, or, you know, asked about my daughter who's a dancer and, and had a he knew I left yesterday uh, and was on my way to the recital or whatever. And, um, you know, to the point about little things, little things. And then, and then you can talk about, you know, the, the goals and objectives and the purpose behind those as well and, uh, and help people understand what success might look like for our business as well. It just, it developed a, a rapport that I liked, that I was comfortable with, and that, uh, and that seemed to work. You know, these plants are steeped in history and pride and people with 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years, you know, and, and multiple generations of people. And, and then you get a certain number of leaders who are in their development track, like you were Pete and like I was early in my career, that come floating through and want to want to be smart. <laughs> right. They want they want to be smart and, and have an answer and, and get on a fast track or whatever the case may be. Um, and and the folks in the plant are going to take exception to that because, hey, I've been here. I come in here every day and the, and the environment is one where people are working seven days a week, 12 hours a day many times. And, uh, you know, so it's it's a grind. It's a it's a it's a work environment. You know, it's really, it's, it's a hardcore work environment with tensions and, and animosities and, and especially animosities between people that have been there for these, these number of years that have an expertise. And then someone like me going in as a young trainee when I did in the flour mill in Avon and they look at you and they go, you don't know, you don't know anything. I was smart enough to realize they're right. I don't know anything. So, so I kind of stood down and, and made myself uh, a student and the way I probably, I didn't do it intentionally or wasn't thinking about it at the time. But when I got started, I honestly didn't know anything about wheat milling. And so I approached it as a student and I just asked a million questions and I just made myself available to learn from the people who had been there doing it for 30 years. And the next thing I knew they were taking, they were taking me under their wing and they were going to make sure I didn't fail because they were my teachers. I had, they, they, 
They wanted me to be successful and say, I taught him how to mill. Part of what the human-centered leadership is, is all about is showing that you don't have to choose between taking care of your people or taking care of your business. That in fact, in taking care of your people, you do take care of your business. As you look back, what would be your leadership philosophy and what do people have to do with that? I'll start with my beliefs and what I think is a fundamental belief that is at the core of everything else that I ended up doing or the way that I, I tried to leave and lead. And that belief is simply, I believe everyone wants to be successful. And if you just pause on that for a second and you think about everyone you encounter every day in your, your workplace or in your community or probably even in your family, and you look through a lens and you don't see a whiner, you don't see a slacker, you don't see a cheater, you, you, don't, you see someone who maybe is behaving in many, many different ways, some that would tell you, boy, they are achievement-oriented, or others that look like they're trying to get by with something. But if you look at them through a lens that says, yeah, but they don't get up in the morning and say, I want to go into work and fail. Hmm. They want to be successful. And when I started looking through that lens, it caused me to think about leadership differently. And the biggest way it caused me to think about leadership is that I realized they want to be successful. I have an accountability in their success. And I have an accountability to be transparent, create a sense of purpose, provide tools in an environment where they can be successful and engage them in a greater purpose than maybe they've been showing up in or help them define what success looks like or maybe listen to them and understand what they think success looks like and have a dialogue about that and see where the common ground is between how they think they will achieve success and how that marries up with what we're trying to do in the business. And then it's my job to connect those two. So I'll stop there. But that, that is a fundamental belief that shifted how I saw my accountability as a leader. And I think how it informed me uh, in terms of how I would behave as a leader. Do you have an example of in, in your career when you when you've been like scratching your head with somebody like what? And then you kind of saw it from a different paradigm once you kind of got to know the situation better. I'll pull out a supervisor who... I didn't think treated uh, their, their team members with very much respect and they were very autocratic and, and everything was, was a dictate and every day was a fight and, and every day there was someone that should have been written up or suspended and, and this particular supervisor or team leader shift was also one of the worst performing in, in the plant and the team leader wasn't a bad person. They wanted to drive results. They cared very much about the company and they cared very much about their performance. And in fact, probably too much. And it, and it drove this, this insanity, if you will. But so I, I first looked at this team and I thought, oh man, that's a terrible, that's just a terrible guy. He's mean, he's autocratic, so on and so forth. 
and I kind of backpedaled off of that. And I, I thought, well, now, wait a minute, he's coming in here. He's shown me some different ways that tell me he, he wants to be successful. He just doesn't know how. So before I, we, we take any drastic measures here, let, let's, let's see what we can do to help him be successful because he wants to be successful. And that's where it starts right there is rather than me going, we got to get rid of this guy. I saw a few things in him that said, man, he is so committed to the company. He just goes about it in a horrible way. So we start, I started spending time with him and it, and it was conversational talked about, you know, asked questions. Who's, who, who are the technical experts on your shift? You know, and, and uh, well, how, how is it that, you know, the, the performance on your systems is, is so low and you know you just spend time let's let's poke at this let's let's learn about you let's learn about how you're leading and in that i was asking questions that was starting to to wake him up to the idea that he had to lead differently he took to heart some some coaching and and some different approaches and started to practice different leadership and without getting into a lot of specifics the the the, the discussion that was the breakthrough for him, as I said, how do you define success? And he told me it was all about the numbers. Well, if, you know, if we're hitting whatever the percent was at the time for operating efficiency, and if there's zero accidents and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I love it, love it, love it. How do all those things happen? <laughs> that's that's about the response I got. It was that quiet. I said, who makes all those things happen? And he kind of realized, oh, the people that I lead. Shifted the conversation and started to turn around his leadership. And, uh, you know, I'll stop there. You can poke more at that example if you'd like. And maybe that's not even the, uh, a, a good example. But I think taking the time to help someone else realize their job as a leader. They weren't the plant manager. I'm a team leader, but no, you're a, you're a leader. You're a leader and, and there's an accountability to your people. They aren't just accountable to deliver results so you can add them up and say how well your shift done. You first have to take care of them. You first have to help them define for themselves success and then help them achieve that success. I love that idea of leaders being accountable to help individuals truly be successful. And, and I love how you gave this example of a performance, potentially a performance issue, and how you were willing to, to take the time necessary to help turn that around. I guess that that's one of my, my questions that I certainly struggle with, um, is how do you truly devote the time necessary to help help turn around somebody's performance in that fashion and frankly still get your day job done <laughs> good good question um i part of the answer to that is i shifted my priorities i shifted my priorities to building strong leaders and in strong organizations uh and and organizations and leaders that my beliefs and my philosophies and, and my coaching skills would transcend the organization in my absence. And so I, I really, at, at one point, started to devote myself 
to the time I spent with my most immediate reports. So, and, and it starts up front. It's an, inv- and I, I also found that if I didn't invest that time early, I had to invest more time later. And I'll give you an example of that. The first meeting I'd have with a department head who would be new to West Chicago when I was the plant manager there, I'd bring them in early and I'd share my beliefs. And I'd say, you know, just bear with me here. I'm gonna, I want to take a little time and I want to, sh- and I'd start with, I believe everyone wants to be successful. You need to know that I believe everyone wants to be successful. And you need to know that I think one person makes a difference. And then I'd go down through, and I won't go through all these for you right now, but then I'd go through, and here's what I expect of you as a new leader in, the, in, in this plant. And, and then here's what you should expect from me. And I'd share that. And then I'd say, did I miss anything? Is there something you would like from me that I should know that you expect of me? And then I'd share with them my hot buttons. And, and the reason I would do that is because I, I wanted to develop a rapport with them early. I wanted them to understand what my makeup was, what I thought would help us achieve success. And then we could have a, a discussion about what, it, what is success? How are we going to define success? And I'd get to the point where I'd say, tell me what success is going to look like for you in this role. And then we talk about how does that marry up with the department you're, you're going to lead now? How does it marry up with the business results we need to achieve? Um, so, the, the, and then, but the, but, but the punchline in this discussion was I would wrap it up with what I had started to practice myself as I moved from plant to plant, which was all this said. I want your first 90 days to be a research project in West Chicago. I don't want you to use words like, I did this at my last plant and we're going to do it now. We need to change this. This is all messed up. I don't want you to use that language. And I don't want you to make any critical decisions without getting some counsel. I want you to go out and I want you to spend all your time on the floor. I want you to learn the names of the people in your department. I want you to come to understand their motivations. I want you to learn who the formal leaders are, the informal leaders are, the technical experts, the people that you can count on for A, B, or C. And uh, so I'm describing for you where that investment starts. Because if I, and I didn't, when I failed to do that, we'd get two, three, four, six months into someone's assignment and we'd be cleaning up messes and I'd be having conversations that were tougher to have because we hadn't set that stage. And so I think that first accountability as a leader is to at least with your immediate reports, set that table and create that transparency develop that rapport that is going to give you the ability to coach um, over time and, and, a, and a confidence that, you're, that your team has in you that you will coach versus reprimand. And the conversations around improvement and how to do things, even when they're tough, even when they're challenging, um, 
are, are easier to be had if you make that investment up front. You should expect from me candid feedback always. I used to tell folks, if you're wondering what your status is with me, what your performance feedback is going to be, what your rating is going to be at the end of the year, if you're wondering what that's going to be in May, I have failed you as a leader. I have failed you as a leader because I want you to be successful. My job's to help you be successful and doing all these things that we're talking about is my way of demonstrating and investing in your success. Well, I think, I think all of these stories have the, the common theme is that you focused on how somebody felt. And I think as we think about this idea of human-centered leadership, I think that you've also shown us how important it is to, at the risk of sounding a little fluffy here, to be heart-centered leadership um, and really focus on how people feel um, because that is going to inspire. And I think that that's what, what your stories have really demonstrated is that if you can help someone feel respected, feel valued, feel smart, feel like they're part of it, um, they're going to do everything they can to be successful. Yeah, you know, uh, Marcy, something struck me as you were you were saying that it, it's an important element. You know, there's a lot of things I could have failed at in my life, and I have probably. Um, but every time I failed at something, I didn't want to be felt uh, made to feel like I was an unworthy human being of being a a son or a brother or a a husband or a, a father or a community leader. Or, and I think, I think that's what happens when, when people are failing is we don't take those things into consideration. And, and you know, well, we can do all these things and we can address tough issues and we can help people move on to other careers because they're not successful at this one. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't have dignity. It, it doesn't mean they shouldn't have respect in all these other aspects of their life. It doesn't diminish who they are as a person because what? Because they weren't uh, the plant manager we needed at the right place at the right time with the right skill set. That just means they weren't the right person at the right time with the right skill set. That's all. If people put their effort in and just don't happen to have the, the capacity or the capability to pull it off, but they gave effort, it doesn't make them a bad person. So let's deal with it. In, in, in a uh, human or heart-centered fashion, to your point. I, I love that. Just, you know, allow people their dignity. That's just a great kind of approach. Why do you think that that is so hard? Why is it so tempting for us to treat people as numbers instead of people, even though probably deep down we all want to do what you're talking about? I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. I, I do. It just struck me. That's a great that's another great question. Um, let's go all the way back to something we talked about earlier, which was investing the time. If I don't invest the time up front, if I don't do, if I'm not a decent leader and take accountability for all these things we talked about around, let's share our beliefs. What do you expect of me? You know, what do I expect from you? Let's define success. What do you think that looks like? What do I think that looks like? How are we going to operate together? And then operate consistent to that, that then we haven't invested as leaders. And then when we have to address a tough issue like poor performance, 
uh, or whatever the case may be. We're uncomfortable. I think we're uncomfortable with ourselves. We haven't done the work we should have. So now I, I shortcut and I've got to be a little nasty and I've got to make it uncomfortable and I've got to, I've got to create you as a failure um, because it couldn't have anything to do with me for crying out loud. And uh, that just, that's what's striking me, Pete. That's very raw right off my cuff in, in reaction to your question. But I think, and, and the reason I could have that raw reaction is probably earlier in my career, I didn't invest in somebody along the way, the way I should have. And I didn't like the way it ended up. And I didn't like that I had to force it to happen. Um, and I had to somehow remove myself from the equation because I hadn't created the expectations as clearly as I should have. Or I hadn't coached them to success the way I felt I could have. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I That's what strikes me. I think it's back to the... If we don't invest and feel good about what we've done ourselves, well, in the equation, we've got to make sure that we pin that all on someone else. Yeah, you know, and John, that brings brings me to the this final question that we have on this podcast. We believe that you can leave people better than you found them. So the question to you is, how do you leave people better than you found them? Wow. The first thing I'd say to that is that should be first and foremost in every leader's mind. That is a wonderful thought to lead with. I'm going to go back to my very basic formula. I'm going to, I'm going to sit down with the people I lead, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in large group or how, however it has to be done, right? I think I first have to meet them where they are. That actually informs me as to the starting point that you reference, right? In getting them to a better place. So under, spending time and understanding where they are is the first part of that. The second is, let's have a discussion about what success looks like. What I think success looks like and what you think success looks like. And then let's agree on what that definition of success is and then let's strive towards that success. And then let's make sure that we, we put that into play with all the people around us and that we get to share that success. We get to build on that success. We get to bring people along to grow and drive their, their, their own success by virtue of being on our team with us through the good and the bad and, and the ugly and, and, and everything else. And I think at the end of the day, if they have greater choices for themselves than where they started or where we met them, they'll be in a better place. They'll be in a better place. Life's about choices. If we can help people develop themselves, find themselves in better circumstance situations, and with a, a host of good choices in front of them, with them understanding what the consequences of picking any one of those is, they'll make the right choice. And that's a better place to be. That's awesome, John. Well said. Thank you so much. That concludes our podcast. We are so grateful that John Russett was so gracious with his time and shared his experiences with us. 
Join us at the next episode of the Human Centered Leadership Podcast, where we will continue to explore the question, how do you leave your employees better than you found them?